The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. So what is the Spirit saying to the church now in America? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. I have been chafing at the bit, waiting to be with you to start the week off today on The Line of Fire. We are live Michael Brown, delighted to be with you here to infuse you with faith and truth and courage so you can be healthy, so you can stand strong, so you can make a difference for Jesus in this critical moment in world history. If you have a question on any subject of any kind, I'll take random calls off topic later in the show, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. If you want to interact with anything that I'm saying that is the same number to call. Okay, Revelation 3.22, after seven messages to churches in Asia Minor, one each to seven different churches in Asia Minor, there is an exhortation to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Jesus always has a message for his people, first and foremost written in the Word, and, and with that, in harmony with the Word, in keeping with the Word, He continues to speak to us by His Spirit. We have a relationship with God by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says that we have communion with the Spirit. John 10, Jesus says, His sheep hear His voice. First uh, Chronicles 12, 32, speaking of the mighty men that joined David in Hebron, it speaks of sons of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. It is critically important that we understand what is happening in our generation. It is critically important that we understand what God is doing, that we understand where people are going. We understand what Satan is doing so that we can understand what we should do. This is not just something abstract. I'm going to keep a prophecy calendar and compare headlines with things in the Bible. No, no, this is a matter of what should we be doing? How should we be living? I've often said that during the 60s, it was a time that we all know was marked by rebellion, by sex, drugs, rock and roll, Eastern religion. It was a time I got caught up in the whole counterculture revolution, was a heavy drug user, rock drummer for a couple of years before God saved me, 1971. Those things were outward and obvious, but I've often pointed out that something was going on behind the scenes. Something was going on under the surface. on the one hand, it was overt, and on the other hand, it was hidden and obscured by all the rebellion, by radical feminism, by gay liberation movement, by, again, the other things I mentioned, sex, drugs, rock and roll, Eastern religion. But beneath that, and in certain ways, a driving force behind that was a search for meaning and a search for more and a search for, for God, that, that as young people, Vietnam War was very disillusioning and frightening. You're going to be drafted, go to fight some war without even trying to win, and for what purpose, and you're going to die there and come back drug addicted in the, in the worst way. And, and the assassinations of, of John F. Kennedy in 1963, then Martin Luther King and Robert F. Kennedy in 1968 added to the tremendous sense of instability. There are many, many other factors. I won't get into all of them now. But it was a time of uncertainty. At a time of asking questions, 
and a time of young people saying there must be more than the American dream. There must be more than this. And Satan co-opted it that moment. He, he saw the hunger. He saw the thirst and filled it with every kind of carnal and destructive thing that cost so many lives and that set us in a terribly wrong direction here in America. Now, conversely, we have to understand what's happening behind the scenes, what, what what's we recognize and seize hold of that we can take advantage of the season rather than letting Satan steal so much. And look, we would sit around and get high. Those of you who are old enough to remember, although there's the saying, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. Uh, anyway, those of us old enough to remember, you would sit around and get high and talk about God, talk about spiritual things. That's where the Eastern religion thing came in. Well, Christianity, Judaism, what we were raised in, that's not, that's not real. It's just old men's tradition. But this stuff, ooh, it's new and different. And, and just the filling of the spiritual longing with carnal things, with fleshly things. Of course, in the midst of this, the Jesus people movement happens. The Jesus revolution. Boom! Suddenly, God starts saving hippies, radicals, rebels in large numbers all around the world. A massive harvest of souls came into the kingdom. And we start flooding traditional churches. And for the most part, the church still didn't get it. The church still didn't recognize what was happening. And so many that got saved then began in the Lord, subsequently fell away. Either they didn't have spiritual fathers to really be there for them, or they didn't have adequate discipleship, or there weren't enough new wineskins for the new wine. So I've said for over 20 years now, we can't sleep our way through another revolution. There's going to be another cultural revolution, and we must recognize what's happening and seize the moment. So what is the Spirit of God saying to the church today? There are some things that seem so obvious and pronounced to me. What I'm about to tell you may seem so self-evident that you wonder why I'm even taking time to tell you. For others, it'll be an alert. It'll be a wake-up call. It'll be a, yes, yes, I see it. I get it. So the first thing... It's time. It's time. The Holy Spirit is moving. I, I said last year, I've been feeling it for several years. I put it in print last year. I see thousands of holy fires all over America. I've been repeating this in recent weeks that all over America, you're going to hear God moving here and here and here and here and here and here and here as the Spirit is, is falling dramatically in different places. You would be stunned by the reports I've gotten from solid pastors I know who've been telling me the last couple of weeks they've never seen God move like this. And services going on hour after hour, hundreds of people getting saved and right with God and people being healed and, and, and spontaneous baptisms, people fully dressed just saying, I want to be baptized now. It's been extraordinary. I mean, leaders who've been in ministry for decades saying, I've never seen this happen. I'm getting the reports, people I know churches that were really solid before, but as they've given themselves to prayer and fasting in the season, boom, God moving. And in a moment of time, God gets the whole nation's attention with, with Fayetteville. In a moment of time, Fayetteville, I'm looking at a caller from Fayetteville, excuse me, Asbury in Wilmore, Kentucky. We'll get to Fayetteville later in the show. The, in a moment of time, God gets the attention of the nation. I mean, even Fox News talking about Asbury Revival, everybody talking about it. And, and God willing, tomorrow's show, I'm going to devote specifically to talking about Asbury. I just got a report from a very, very solid seasoned colleague himself, a graduate from Asbury probably 50 years ago or close to it. 
and and he said, I was there Sunday night from 7 p.m. to to 1 a.m. He said things are not letting up. All the auditoriums, all the buildings filled. 25,000 people. It's completely overwhelmed Wilmore, Kentucky. There are more people than they have bathroom facilities to accommodate. I mean, it's it's overwhelmed the town. And Asbury, as far as I understand, said, okay, we're shutting things down on the campus because students have to go on with life and meetings will be held elsewhere. So other other locations off campus, as I understand things. But it seems they're doing their best to decentralize. I believe the leadership there has been tremendously wise. But it is time. Say time for what? Time for outpouring. Time for revival. Time for awakening. Time for renewal. Time for visitation. I truly believe pastors, leaders, believers, brothers, sisters, I truly believe if we will call out to God earnestly, if we will cut back from non-essentials and earnestly seek the face of God, if we will give ourselves to prayer and fasting as we're moved on to do so, I believe wherever you are, whoever you are, that you will see God come and visit. Oh, it may not be in a day or a week, but I believe if you cry out and persist, the time is now. The rain is falling. Things are happening that we have not seen happen in many, many years. We must seize the moment. If you didn't read my recent article about the calling to guard the flame, go to my website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Just click on read, and you'll see it a couple articles back. Or check out our app, Ask Dr. Brown Ministries, askdrbrown Ministries. If you don't have the app, grab it, download it, and then read. You'll see it's one of the most recent articles. We must guard the flame. When God sends the fire, you have to really, really guard it carefully. What I mean is, when he starts moving, don't stop praying. The prayer that births revival will sustain revival. When God starts moving, don't stop believing. Don't stop reaching out. Do, do the things that keep the flame burning. Give the fire something to burn. Consecrate your life afresh. Reach out and give yourself to touching other people. Pray and believe. We'll talk more about that in the days ahead. But no, no question whatsoever, and I said at the end of January that the first wave has hit America. I have no question about it. I said the first wave has hit America. It's before Asbury, before all the revival headlines. It was clear. It was evident. It was obvious to me it was already happening. Here's the second thing. It's time for the joining of the generations. It's time for the joining of the generations, and it's time for young people to be touched by God. When I was in, in Tampa at Arise Church a few weeks ago, called all the young people up to the stage, and there was a, quite a flood of, of kids. And these are solid kids in church meeting with God, encountering God. And I, and, and they were, I said, let's, let's all pray for them. We wanted them to pray for each other. And they were, they're praying fervently. Little kids, folks up to college age. It was tremendous. It was beautiful. And I, and I said, I said, look at me. I said, you're going to see God move in your generation. You're going to see a youth awakening. You're going to see a youth awakening. When I was down at YWAM, the base in Kona, and I, I probably wasn't the wisest thing to do, but at the end of the Thursday night service and preached on great worship, then I preached on spiritual hunger, and the altars flooded with people crying out to God. I said, I, I, I want everyone 25 and younger to come up here. So, Gen Z, I want you to come up on the platform. It's a giant platform, but there's so many hundreds. I mean, they filled the entire platform. They had to stand in the front. It was, it was massive. 
and I, and I told him, you're going to see, you're going to see awakening. You're going to see amazing things happening. It is time for Gen Z. It is time for young people to be visited by God. Those who are the most unchurched in, in our recorded history as a nation, to my knowledge, those who have the, the smallest percentage with a biblical worldview, uh, in our, as far as polling goes back, to my knowledge, those who have the highest percentage of identifying somewhere in the LGBTQ plus spectrum, those who've been so turned off by the politicizing of the church and the scandals in the church, it's time for Gen Z to be visited by God. It's time for an outpouring among the young people. It's time for a new Jesus revolution. And oh, what a coincidence. What a coincidence that at this moment, the Jesus revolution film, Greg Griller, I read the book. It's an awesome book. Folks at YWAM previewed the film, said it's an awesome film. What a coincidence, a wholly planned divine coincidence that the Jesus Revolution film is coming out now. It's time for a massive harvest of souls, a new Jesus Revolution. Friends, the generations must be joined together if we want to see the fullness of the harvest. A couple more things on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is saying many things to the church. These are the things that, that are jumping inside of me, that, that I hear shouting on the inside of me. And, and they'll be shouting on the inside of me for a long time to come because this is just the beginning of some extraordinary, beautiful, wonderful things that God will be doing. So, <clears throat> so, couple more things of urgency. Some years back, well over a decade ago, I, I can't place it exact. No, I'm, I'm thinking back probably 20 years or more. When God started laying on my heart about the urgency, reach out to the LGBTQ community with compassion, resist the agenda with courage. And then it was just more gay, lesbian community by trans wasn't as big a thing, but just the same mandate. Reach out to these people for whom Jesus died with compassion, resist the agenda with courage. So it's a holy tension that you live with. As as God began stirring me, that's 19 years ago, probably even before that, I began to sense that there's going to be another Jesus people movement where God's radically saving young people from every kind of background, but the church won't be ready unless we prepare the church. But this time, it won't be the hippies and that, you know, leading the way in terms of the long haired drug using, promiscuous, all this. Rather, it'll be this massive harvest among those who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, etc. Now, who knew at that point that even though it was less than 3% of the population 
at that point that was identifying us somewhere on that spectrum, that when you fast forward 15, 20 years and you get up to Gen Z, that it's going to be between 21 and 40 percent identifying that spectrum. So just naturally, if God saves a whole bunch of young people, that's going to mean a whole bunch of those who identify as, as LGBTQ plus plus older who uh, are in that lifestyle or would identify in that way. Will the churches be ready? You say, sure. No, 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 we won't unless we recognize we're not ready, unless we recognize that there are going to be things coming in that surprise us, unless we're regularly praying for those that identify as LGBTQ, etc. unless we have a heart of compassion, unless we are willing to have some of our paradigm shift. Oh, I don't mean about holiness. I don't mean about marriage as God intended it and his the only thing he blesses is marriage namely the union of a man and a woman i don't mean any change there i don't mean any less grief over trans activism and the mutilation of children no no i don't mean a paradigm shift there i mean people will come from every kind of background and some of them new believers very raw and they haven't been discipled yet or they haven't encountered god deeply enough to really come to full repentance and and they may come in in ways that surprise us. Will we be ready to receive them, embrace them, rather than, oh, no, you got to comport to this and this and this and this before you come in our doors? And then how do we handle all the people who've had transgender surgeries and are on hormones? And what do we, certain things are irreversible. And how do we identify with them? How do we interact with them? And how do we make them feel welcome? while at the same time saying, hey, let's help you really come to know Jesus and receive transformation through the gospel. As I've said endless times, Jesus did not practice affirmational inclusion, but transformational inclusion. So how do we, how do we relate to that? <clears throat> so we gotta be praying. We've gotta be saying, God, give us your heart. Give us your heart. Give us your heart for people that we normally wouldn't be burdened to reach because they're too different or, or they're doing things outwardly almost meant to push us away or test us. Or what do we do? Okay, these two guys come in. They say they love Jesus. They're carrying Bibles, but they say they're married to each other. Do we just kick them out? Well, we excommunicate you for walking in the door with Bible and being in a... Do we immediately say, well, we need to have a talk with you? Do we say, so glad you're here and let the Holy Spirit work in them? And then if they don't come to awakening repentance, then sit down with them to help them. Okay, listen, if you're going to follow Jesus and be part of this community, there are biblical standards. And then what, what if they're raising kids and what have? These are all the kinds of things that are going to happen. And here's a man wearing a dress who identifies as a woman who wants to use the ladies' room. You don't want to make him feel excluded, but you certainly don't want him in there with the ladies and girls. So what do you do? How do you handle these things? And he'll feel uncomfortable with the guy. The guys will feel uncomfortable with him in the bathroom too. So how do you handle these things? What if someone comes to you and says, okay, you've known me. I mean, I remember years ago, a friend of mine with a church in California, a, a, a friend of a colleague of mine. And, and he, he says, listen, we had, we had this woman in our church for years. She was working with us. She was on staff doing evangelism only to find out this is actually a man who had sex change surgery. When the women that knew her heard, they were outraged. She was in the bathroom with us. We talked. What? They were outraged. They were grieved. Well, love Jesus. Well, love Jesus, but deeply confused and deceived and needing help. 
What do you do with such a person? You just say, oh, okay, we'll just go back to identifying as a man, and we'll now, instead of calling you Sally, we'll call you Sam, and just we'll call it a day. I mean, how's that work for everybody, for kids that know this individual, for the individual himself? How does this work? So these are the kinds of glorious challenges we're going to have ahead of us as the Lord reaches out his hand and touches a population, part of our population, that is often very hurting, has often suffered much rejection, uh, often still dealing with trauma and wounds on the inside. I'm, I'm not putting people down. I'm saying that, that often these, these are the realities. And this, this is what we can expect in large number in the days ahead. Are we ready? Pastors, churches, leaders, youth leaders, are we ready? And one last thing that I believe the Holy Spirit is saying to the church, it's time for the Holy Spirit. It's time for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be poured out so powerfully. Baptist churches, Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches, Lutheran churches, all kinds of churches, not just Pentecostal charismatic. The Holy Spirit will be poured out so widely. People that you know will have such testimonies of encountering God, encountering the Spirit in ways that, that you're not used to. I'm telling you, it's scriptural. It's scriptural. The, the era of the Holy Spirit is the last days from when Jesus died and rose from the dead until he returns. Peter, quoting from Joel, adds in the words, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. That means sons and daughters prophesying. That means old men receiving dreams and young men receiving visions. It means supernatural working and supernatural communication of the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely what it means, friends. And uh, around the world, the Holy Spirit's moving powerfully. Around the world, all the, the vast majority, I can't say all, but the vast, vast majority of churches that are growing through rapid conversion of sinners, through supernatural adding of disciples, it, it is happening almost always around the world in settings that you would consider charismatic, Pentecostal. In other words, the Holy Spirit moving, even if they don't identify as such, they believe in healing today. They believe in miraculous gifts operating today. They believe in driving out demons today, as the scriptures plainly teach. Listen, if I never saw someone healed, I believe in healing today because the word says so. If I never spoke in tongues, I believe tongues were for today because the word says so. If I never gave a prophecy or received a prophecy, I believe that prophecy was for today because the word says so. I'm a word-based person. That's why I'm so passionate about the Holy Spirit, because I'm a word-based person. It is time for the Spirit. And all this, and I'll talk about this more tomorrow, all this has also revealed a destructive spirit of criticism that inevitably rises up when revival comes. Why? Because the revival fires bring it to the surface. All right, so those are some of the things I believe it's essential to grab hold of that it is time for revival. It is time for joining of the generations and especially an outpouring among young people. It is time for a massive harvest of those who identify somewhere in the LGBTQ plus spectrum. It is time for the Holy Spirit to move afresh. I fully expect these things. I've expected them for many, many years. We're now in the beginning of something that I and others, some of you have prayed for for decades here it is. We must seize the moment. And by God's grace, we are right here on the front lines, on the line of fire, ready. 
for you. We'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. And yeah, we invite you to join with us as, as monthly torchbearers. Thank you, all our torchbearers out there. Hat, hats off to you. Much appreciation because you undergird our work and you help amplify this message around the world, literally. All right. I came back from, from this trip. I was on the road for two weeks. So Dallas, Fort Worth, Jackson, Mississippi, back to Dallas, then Kona, Hawaii, then back home, arriving uh, day before yesterday. So getting in Saturday night. And I went into my office today. The, the offices in general are closed because of the holiday, but went into my office and they're stacked up all the books ready to sign. So God willing, that's tomorrow. We'll get them all out. Why so many Christians have left the faith. We respond to the deconstructionist movement in this book. It's, it's going to be so critical to have this information in your hands because so many young people are going to be coming in and they're going to have a lot of questions and they're not going to share the same foundations. In other words, they're not they're not going to see Scripture the same way. They're not going to have the knowledge. They, they'll be more influenced by social media and what, what peers say and things like that than just, well, the Word says so. So we have to help, help them understand why is the Word relevant. I've got a whole chapter on that. I've got a whole chapter on if, Christi if gay is good, Christianity is bad. Uh, how could a good God send billions of people to hell? Whole chapters dealing with these things. So get a copy of the book. We'll be signing them, sending them out tomorrow. Number to call, 800-538-5275. By the way, it's also a great way to support our ministry. For those who believe in us, get the book and support us. 800-538-5ASK. That's 800-538-5275. Or just go to our website, askdrbrown, askdrbrown.org. Click on store, and you'll see this special offer. Take advantage of it. All right, to the phones we go, completely switching subjects. We start with Terry in South Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Terry, you still there? Yes, ah, I am. All right, go ahead. Go ahead, Terry. Uh, the, the first, uh, so I had a couple of questions to ask you um, in regards to, um, I, I love sharing my faith with uh, Jews and Christians alike, but mm -hmm. um, there's some, uh, some things. The first thing I want to talk about is the Sabbath day, uh, the Sabbath of Jesus breaking the Sabbath. And uh, I always, it's, it's, it's almost like uh, Jews say that Jesus break the Sabbath. And so therefore just, and I feel like they do this uh, not because they feel that he may have broken. And some of them may feel that way, but it's just mainly to criticize him because he claims to be the Messiah. Mm -hmm. But in any case, Jesus, throughout the entire book of the Old Testament, like 15, 20 times, you know, Jesus always talked about taking care of the needy, the poor, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So he always talked about that. 
Um, and then he even commanded uh, the people in the Old Testament to actually to take care of them. And if you see anyone that's hungry, feed them. So to me, um, I, I, I'm confused um, to why would God allow anyone to starve, even if it's we're not saying go out and just break the Sabbath or go your own way. We're just saying if you see someone that is in need, help them. Even uh, I, right, I so, of, yeah, so Terry, j- just for clarification, is the question yeah, whether Jesus broke the Sabbath? Yeah. Or, okay. Okay. So Absolutely. just to focus on that, right? If, if he broke the Sabbath, he couldn't be the Messiah because he would be a lawbreaker. He would be abolishing okay. the law rather than fulfilling it. So he broke Jewish traditions that had risen up that he said got in the way of the Sabbath. So, for example, when he healed the blind man on John 9, in, in John uh-huh. the ninth chapter, he doesn't just pronounce him healed. He takes dirt, spits on it, turns it into mud, puts it on the man's eyes. So there were, there were two things that he did that would have violated what we know to be Jewish tradition that developed over the years. One is that uh, it would be considered work to turn dirt into mud that would be kneading on the Sabbath. The other, it was forbidden to apply medicine that was not emergency on the Sabbath. So if it could be done another day, you do it another day unless it was needed. So he could have healed on any other day. So he violated the traditions. In John 5, it says that he called himself God and broke the Sabbath. Well, on the one hand, he made himself equal with God and and broke the Sabbath. On the one hand, that's what the Jewish listeners thought that he was guilty of. But it's also possible to translate loosed the Sabbath there. In other words, that he loosed it from Jewish tradition. So he didn't violate the Sabbath. Otherwise, it would have been easy to accuse him. You can't be the Messiah. You're violating the Sabbath. You know, if he was doing carpentry on the Sabbath or masonry on the Sabbath or something like that, he would have been clearly not the Messiah, but he was doing things of of humanitarian grace, and that was part of the meaning of the Sabbath. So he didn't violate the written word. He only violated human traditions. Yep. So, okay. uh, Yep. Okay. I'm sorry. I have a, like a disability or whatever. So uh, just if you can bear with me, I apologize about that. That's all right. Go ahead. Okay. My second question was, um, uh, does the world get destroyed by? Does the world get destroyed, or do we go to a new heaven, or do, does he rebuild the old earth? Right. So, on the one hand, Second Peter three does speak of the universe being burned up with fire, uh, and then Revelation twenty one and twenty two speak of a new heavens and a new earth. But from what I can understand in Scripture, it's going to be the purging and the renovation of the current earth and heaven. In other words, it's not that everything gets totally wiped out and then God starts mm-hmm. from scratch and makes it new, rather that the universe is purged with fire, that everything unclean is burned out and everything that is a result of sin in the universe is burned out. And then an absolutely pristine, perfect new heavens and new earth that'll never be defiled. That's where we exist forever. And our base is here on, on a new earth where God himself will come and dwell with us. Okay, so the new earth is um, th- this world right here. Yes, as best as I understand it, this world completely purged of all aspects of sin okay. and effects of sin. Yep. Okay, thank you. 
my third and last question was um, the Jews talk about the uh, I think Ben Joseph uh, Ben uh, Ben David Ben Joseph. I've never heard of it. And I would like you to see if you can explain what's going on there. I've never heard of it. Yeah, sure thing. So I actually was not familiar with this when I was growing up as a Jewish boy because I was not in a religious Jewish home. So my knowledge of Judaism was was very much lacking. But there is a traditional Jewish teaching. It is widely accepted worldwide. Not every traditional Jew holds to it, but it is widely accepted that there will be two messianic figures, Messiah, son of Joseph, or in Hebrew, Mashiach ben Yosef, and Messiah, son of David, Mashiach ben David, that they will both be end-time figures, that Messiah, son of Joseph, will arise and do many messianic things. In other words, in helping regathering of, of, the, of the Jewish people to the land and, and, and fighting the wars of the Lord, but that he himself will be cut down and killed. Messiah, son of David, will raise him from the dead, and then Messiah, son of David, will complete the work and usher in the messianic era. There are some Jewish teachings that say that if the Jewish people are worthy of the Messiah, that they won't pass through the trials of Messiah, son of Joseph, but will only see Messiah, son of David. And when Jewish tradition speaks of the Messiah, the Messiah, praying and believing in the coming of the Messiah every day, they're talking about Messiah, son of David. But there are many traditional Jews who believe there'll be another figure, Messiah, son of Joseph. And we often say it's not two different messianic figures, it's one, one who suffers, dies and rises, dies for our sins and rises, is also the same one that sets up his kingdom on the earth. Hey, Terry, thank you for the questions and the interest. Grace to you, my brother. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to McKay in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Are you there? Okay, tell you what, because the questions Hello? post. Oh, okay, hang on, hang on. All right, looks like you are there. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, thanks for holding. Go ahead. Uh, uh, I wanted your opinion about it. Is it outright heretical to you, or uh, what are the flaws to you, or is it is it just, yeah, that's my question. Yeah, it's so let me explain to everyone what we mean by conditional immortality. Conditional mortality means that human beings are not inherently destined to live forever that immortality is a gift from God. First Timothy 6, that God alone has immortality, and he gives us eternal life. So without eternal life, we will die and perish. Uh, unless God gives us the ability to live forever, we will die and perish. That's conditional immortality. The, the doctrine that most Christians are familiar with is the immortality of the soul, that the human soul is made to live forever. And if we are right with God through the cross, we will live forever with God. That is eternal life. If we are not right with God, we will live forever in a place of punishment. That is eternal death. So number one, conditional immortality is absolutely not heretical. In other words, it is not a foundational Christian doctrine taught in the Bible that you must believe in the immortality of the soul. Some even claim that's a Greek concept, but whether the Bible teaches that or not, it, it, is, uh, it is a secondary doctrine. It is not a primary doctrine. So it's not a matter of heresy. It's not like denying 
the existence of God or denying that the blood of Jesus atones for our sins or denying that the Bible is the word of God. So it's, it's not heretical. That's number one. Number two, even if human beings in and of themselves would live after death, in other words, that the soul itself is destined to continue to live on when separated from the body. And you could find things in the Bible about that, like Luke 16, that immediately after death, you have the rich man and Lazarus, and they're continuing on in their existence after death. Or Revelation 6, the souls of those beheaded for the gospel are crying out to God before his throne. So you, you see human beings living on uh, after death. Even if that was the case, God can destroy the ungodly. So to me, McKay, I wouldn't major on the question of whether the soul is immortal or not. I would major on what God does to that soul if that soul is righteous or unrighteous. So in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says to his disciples, don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul, right? So that would indicate the soul lives on after death. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So that, to me, is the bigger issue. There, it seems to me in Scripture that the soul lives on after this physical body is killed. However, so, so unless we eat of the tree of life in this world, we die. So we're, we're all going to die in this world. Since entered the world, we're all going to die. So how do we live forever? Well, we live forever in the presence of God, Live forever in the presence of God. How is that? By receiving eternal life from him and not being destroyed. So the bigger question is, can God destroy body and soul? He can. He absolutely can. That's clearly taught in Scripture. Hey, I hope that is helpful, sir. God bless you. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. We are about to unroll, unfold, unfurl our national expansion campaign for the Line of Fire with your help and with the help of Trivita. And yeah, I, I travel with my Trivita supplements, of course, everywhere I go, folks know my healthy diet and they accommodate. And then I travel with these supplements and it's just, boy, I am really benefiting. I am really enjoying. Can't wait to share these with you. And remember 100% of your first order with Trivita, every dime goes to, to support the line of fire expansion nationally. And then future orders, more than the tithe is given. So here's the number to call 800 771-5584-800-771-5584 or just go to trivita.com use the code brown capital b brown 25 and when you do you get a 25 percent discount on your order all right with that we go back to the phones uh karen in greensboro north carolina welcome to the line of fire hey go ahead so, um, so my question was, and I have two ways of phrasing it, so you can pick which way you want to answer, but the, the first question is, what is the best apologetic to aid in bringing conservative or maturity due to Christ 
And the second question is, what is um, the most common objection that a majority or conservative Jew would have to Christ? Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll try to condense a 40-hour answer to a few seconds. First, let me refer you to realmessiah.com. That's our Jewish outreach website, realmessiah.com. Tons of free resources there, written answers, video answers, responses to rabbis, debates with rabbis, all free. If you have the app, the Ask Dr. Brown Ministries app, just scroll down. On the homepage, you'll see Real Messiah. Otherwise, just go to realmessiah.com. The best resource that, that has been produced uh, is one that the, the Lord helped me write. So it was the first that came out like this. Five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Five volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. That's, that's the title of the series. Each one obviously tackling different aspects or, or several different aspects of issues and objections that come up. But fear not, there's a summary of the top hundred or so objections. A summary of the top hundred or so objections with short responses. So here's a short written response, here's a short video response. So you can start there. And if you want to dig deeper, then go ahead and get each of the volumes one by one as applicable. The most common objections, because there are going to be a few, one is, well, this is Christianity, not Judaism. In other words, Judaism is observing the Torah, following the Sabbath, keeping God's commandments, and Christianity is about something else. So the perception, it's another religion. Or we don't believe in three gods, we believe in one. So the New Testament doctrine of God's triunity, God's trinity, Jesus' deity, that would be seen, seen as foreign. Or... Obviously, the Messiah hasn't come because when the Messiah comes, there's peace on earth. And there's been anything but peace the last 2,000 years. Those are some of the most common ones that will come up. But again, we have a list of over 100 most common objections with short responses, written, video, and then telling you, here's if you want to dig deeper, here's where to go. You can also watch debates I've had with rabbis for free right there at realmessiah.com, and that'll give you insight. Uh, and those who have been... Uh, influenced or confused by counter-missionary rabbis like Tovia Singer and others, we have systematic rebuttals, probably about 10, 12 up there now, and we keep developing more to demolish the misinformation that Tovia and others are putting forth. So that's all there at realmessiah.com or on your app. Just scroll down to Real Messiah. Thank you, Karen, for your interest. Much appreciated. Let's go to John in Lincoln, Illinois. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. Hey. Hey, um, my question is about Jesus literacy. Um, I'm a student at Lincoln Christian University in Illinois, and I had to take a, a New Testament class last semester in the fall. And I was um, one day in class, my professor was saying that 90% of the people in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world uh, were illiterate. Mm -hmm. And that the average person, you know, basically people could, if you could actually read or write, that you were a fairly elite person. And then he just just randomly mentioned, you know, as a throw-in, that that meant that Jesus probably couldn't read because he was just the son of a carpenter, or tradesman, craftsman, and not like, you know, an elite person in Israel um, with, you know, his humble beginnings that the New Testament emphasizes and I said, well, 
if he couldn't read, then how did he stand up in the synagogue and read the, from the scroll of Isaiah? Yep. <laughs> and then he got into a whole bunch of explanation about that essentially just because the Gospel of Luke says that he read, wrote, read from the scroll doesn't mean that he actually did, because Luke was writing to this guy, Theophilus, who was most excellent, like, like an elite person, and he essentially said he thought that Luke was just spicing Jesus up to make him appeal it more appealing to this elite you know, right. person that was that Luke was addressed to. Right. So, so let, let me. I, let me that yeah. didn't sit well with me no, at all. Of course, I was not. wondering your. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, he, no, comment. he's told, he, he's totally wrong on all counts. He's totally wrong, uh, un- unfortunately. And if Luke is just spicing things up, uh, why can we trust anything that he writes? It's not the word of God, then. It's not inspired scripture. It's Luke spicing things up, and amazingly. A professor teaching today in Lincoln, Illinois, knows more about the culture than Theophilus would have, because Theophilus, who has read that Jesus was the son of a carpenter, didn't even wonder, why, how could he read if he was only the son of a carpenter? That's bizarre. He would have spotted it better than a professor today would spot it, right? You know, that's the culture he lives oh, that's in. that's true. Right, exactly. So, so num- number one, uh, Jews had a much higher percentage of literacy in the ancient world than other cultures. So that's, that's the first thing that, that just blows that up. Yes, it's true, a tremendous amount was memorized. So no question that it was a heavily oral culture and large portions of material could be memorized. It was just part of the culture. You know, I, when I was a, a non-believer, I never wrote down a phone number. And I knew the phone number of every, every person I ever met that gave me their phone number. I was famous for that, just tell me your number. And I remembered it. Now. I know my number, my wife's number by heart, the phone numbers I grew up with, and I don't think I know anybody else's number by heart because we just have it on our phones, speed dial. So it was an oral culture, and in that oral culture, you learned a lot, memorized it. But in Jewish circles, there was much more emphasis on learning by book as well. So you learn by book and by memory. And without a doubt, when Jesus is, everybody, remember, everybody in the hometown knows him. They're not shocked. They don't say, how could he read? Wow, I can't believe he's reading. That's amazing. No, they're amazed when he says, this scripture I just read, Ruach Adonai Elohim Mashach this scripture I just read from Isaiah 61 is talking about me. Wow, that's what got their attention. So, of course, he could read. He could, <laughs> he could read Hebrew. Whether he could read Aramaic, certainly he would have spoken Aramaic as well. Uh, There's a debate among scholars whether he knew Greek, whether he could speak Greek or not. But certainly he read Hebrew, most likely Aramaic as well, certainly spoke Aramaic as well. So no question about it. Your your instincts were 100% right, John. Well done. Now, when I... um... Still there. Um, Go ahead. Messianic leader in my area named Danny Botkin that writes this periodical called The Gates of Eden, and he, he's not as well known as yourself, but he does travel around the country and preach and teach and stuff. But you know, my dad is a friend with him, so when I asked him about it, he said that that um, have attended and and they you know were teaching Hebrew and stuff like that. And when I asked my New Testament professor at Lincoln about that, he said that he thought that that was something that didn't start until later on after the 
the period of the of the Gospels. Um, right. So something so, I, I just missed. Your phone cut out for a second. What What did they learn? What is it that your professor said uh, only came later? I'm sorry. Um, so uh, I understand that at some point the Jews had like a Torah school. Ah, uh, uh, okay. That right, right. All Jews had to go to school and memorize Torah and learn Hebrew and stuff. Um, I, in fact, that's referenced in the TV show The Chosen. Did right. that start? Was that around during the time of Jesus, or did okay, that so start that, after? So that that's debate for sure. Jewish children were learning Torah at that time for sure. And they, they were also learning certain traditions, depending on which <clears throat> group they were in. Um, but the question is how it was being taught, how accessible Torahs were. So that's why Torah schools, that's why they'd be learning together in a synagogue or in, in a place of study, some kind of school, something like that. But we know for sure that at that time, there was regular reading of the Torah every week. In, in, in Israel, the land of Israel, it, you would go through the Torah once in three years, in Babylon once in a year. And then you would read from the, the prophets from other parts of the Old Testament. Was that fixed or was that up to the reader? That part is debated. But certainly they were learning at that point. Uh, the question is how accessible it was. Was it in every community? Were some more by memory, uh, some by writing? Those things we can speculate on. But hey, thank you for the questions. And I've only got a minute. Alan in Somerville wanted to know my position on the He Gets Us campaign. I've, I've addressed this in, sh in short before, and I've only seen some of the ads. I'm thrilled that people are putting a lot of money into getting a message out to a secular audience. In other words, taking time in the Super Bowl and all the massive amount of money there and then on other major secular platforms to get a message of the gospel out and to introduce people to Jesus. I think that is wonderful. One of the ads I saw, at least one, really concerned me because all it did was say, hey, Jesus is just like us and he understands us. And there was nothing redemptive, nothing about him being who he is. So unless there's an incredible follow-up where when you get to the next site, they really lead you to the Lord. I was, I was disappointed with some of what I saw. It's like, oh, that misses the point. But maybe there's more good to it than I know. Back with you tomorrow. Another program powered by the Truth Network.